So it is my privilege and honor to be able to bring with you, bring to you the Word of God this morning. We will be uh, dipping back into 1 Samuel after we had that uh, summer break in Philippians, so hopefully you guys can uh, get caught up as we get started here. Of all the sermons that I would feel unworthy to preach, a, a sermon about the holiness of God is, is definitely one of them, so uh, bear with me as we go along here as we learn about the holiness of God. Let's read the passage that we're going to be in, which is Samuel 6. We'll be starting in verse 13, and we'll go all the way to chapter 7, verse 2. 1 Samuel 6, verses 13 is where we'll start. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there, and a large stone was there. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. And the Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to Yahweh. So the five lords of the Philistines saw it and returned to Ekron that day. Now these are the golden tumors which the Philistines return for a guilt offering to Yahweh. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of Yahweh is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite. Then he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of Yahweh. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men. And the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the, Beth, and the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of Yahweh. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and brought the ark of Yahweh up and brought it into the house of Abinadad on the hill and set apart Eliezer, his son, as holy in order to keep the ark of Yahweh. Now it happened from the day when the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim that the time was long. It was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. Let's open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this passage that we are working through this morning. Father, I thank you um, for the things that we can learn from it. Keep me from error. Help me to be able to, to come from it in the perspective that you have it, Father. And I just thank you once again uh, for you and what you've done for us. May you be glorified through this. We pray that in your name. Amen. So I have titled this sermon, Who is Able to Stand Before Yahweh, This Holy God? This obviously comes from verse 20 in the text that we just read. This was the right question for the Israelites to ask, and this question is something that we all need to ask our, ourselves, and not that we just need to ask it. We need to be able to answer it. I'm coming at this from three different perspectives. I'll come at it from the perspective of the Philistines. I'll come at it from the perspective of the Israelites, and then I'm going to come at it from our perspective. We need to be able to see where they are coming from and what answer that they come up with so that we can come up with 
the right conclusion. So before we begin, I'm going to ask you this question. Can you stand before Yahweh, this holy God? Can you stand before a holy God? Are you good enough? Are you holy enough? Are you Christian enough? Are you religious enough? To answer these questions, we need to understand who God is, and we need to understand who we are. These sound like simple questions with simple answers, but as we dig into this, there will be so much to unpack as we go, and this can only scratch the surface of the holiness of God. This passage that we are dealing with today will be the end of the ark narrative that we started in chapter 4. So as we have talked about the other times, um, the Philistines go to battle against the Israelites. The first battle is won by the Philistines, and 3,000 men are killed. The Israelites then have this terrible idea that they need to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them this next time. The Ark being the sacred chest that, amongst other things, contained the two tablets of stone on which God had written the law. And this is where the glory of God resided. So into battle they go. In contrast to the attitude they should have had, which was reverence and awe, they treated the ark like a good luck charm, assuming that if they took the ark into battle, God would not let them be defeated. But God is no God who will be forced into a corner. God allows them to be greatly defeated, greatly defeated to the tune of 30,000 men. In turn, the Philistines take the ark of the covenant of Yahweh as a prized battle spoil. When news of this reached back to Eli, the high priest who was in Shiloh, he fell over backwards and died right then and there. Ichabod, the glory had departed. What a dark time for the covenant people of God. After that, the story shifts to the Philistines as they put the ark in their temple along with their gods, not understanding that there is only one true God, and that is the God of Israel. Through all this, God has been in complete control, and we see that as the Philistines deal with the ark. First, God makes their false god, Dagon, fall on his face in the temple. They set him back up, hoping nobody has seen. The next morning, he not only has fallen again, but this time, both his head and his palms have been cut off. This leads the Philistines to move the ark out of the temple for fear of what else Yahweh might do to their god. But that doesn't stop Yahweh. He then brings calamity on the Philistines everywhere they take it until they come to the conclusion that they need to send the ark back. To where it came from. They agree. They need to send it back and that with it they must send an offering. So they form five golden tumors and golden mice to represent the calamity that God had brought on the five cities of the Philistines. Let's just go back and read chapter 5 verse 11 of 1 Samuel and it says this. 1 Samuel 5 verse 11. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, so it will not put us and our people to death. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very glorious there. This is the answer that the Philistines came up with to the question of who can stand before a holy God. After putting all the knowledge that they had in the wise men of their country, they came to the conclusion that they couldn't. They couldn't stand before a holy God. Not only that, but they didn't know how to do that. Only thing that they could think of was that they needed to get rid of the ark as fast as they could so that the hand of God would no longer be on them. Send it away, they said, lest many of their people will die. 
as we have talked about the last time I spoke, they didn't understand the need for true repentance. They were sorry that God was doing all these bad things to them, but they had no understanding of how to truly fix it. Their band-aid solution was to just send the ark away, and that is what they do. They send it back to the land of Israel, but they want to make sure that sending it away will cause the calamities to stop that God has dealt. Their plan is to take two milk cows with calves and put a yoke on the cows, which they had never had before. Then they would lock up their calves at home and see if the cows would take the ark, which they had put on a cart, back to the people of Israel. For those that have never weaned calves from cows before, um, this is contrary to the nature of these animals. Uh, It's very hard to get cows to go in the opposite direction of calves after they're weaned. We just weaned some of ours at the farm this week, and those cows don't care about anything other than getting back to where they have your calves locked up. They'll usually go to great measures to get back there. But as God was in control of this situation, he led those cows to take the cart with the ark on it straight back to the town of Beth Shemesh. It says that the cows took a straight path there. This could only be from the hand of God. Again, we see God's hand at work here. As the cows were going, the lords of the Philistines followed along behind until they went to the border of the Israelites, needing to know without a shadow of a doubt that this was indeed all from the hand of Yahweh. This finally leads us to our particular text that we are looking at today in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their harvest, wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. In the valley of Beth Shemesh, we see the people reaping their wheat harvest. Here that would have been in the fall month of September, October, uh, but in Israel it would have most likely been the month of June that this was happening. Here, if someone were to approach a field in which harvesting was happening, you might find a handful of people uh, working and stuff like that. But back then, this would have been a citywide event that almost everybody would have been out helping. This would have been an arduous work compared to what we see today. Uh, Today, it's pretty easy to sit in a combine and let it do all the work. But back then, there would have been much manual labor involved. Grain would be cut and gathered to a common threshing floor where oxen would pull a sled around in order to cut up and start the separation process. All in all, it would take many people to harvest a small amount of grain. So this is the situation they find themselves in. In the middle of this big task of harvesting grain, they lift up their eyes and see two cows pulling a cart, the Ark of the Covenant coming toward them. I think this verse shows the state uh, the Israelites were in. First off, all through this Ark narrative, we don't see any indication that the Israelites had done anything to try to get the ark back. We don't see them formulate a plan to attack the Philistines. We don't see any spies that are being sent out to try to find out where the ark was. And if spies had been sent out, most likely they would have been aware that the ark was coming back and they wouldn't have been surprised to see it. Um, But instead, we see them totally unprepared for the arrival. In the middle of their harvest, they look up and they were glad to see it. Some translations say that they rejoiced, which emphasizes a bit more of the jubilation over the ark. The ark had been gone for over seven months, and in the meantime, as the Israelites were prone to do, there is good reason to suggest that they may have already been following some false gods. They finally see the sacred ark being carried back to them on this cart. I am sure that they thought they might never see it again, and that it would be destroyed, but here it comes, and they rejoice. We see just a bit further down that they offer sacrifices to the Lord and a burnt offering. And it's easy to wonder why they didn't have a more overjoyed or uh, celebratory reaction. Let's continue on in verse 14 and 15. 
And the cart came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there, and a large stone was there. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. And the Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the box that was with it, which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to Yahweh. The cows and the cart came into the field of Joshua and stopped. Again, we see the hand of God at work here. The cows had traveled all the way from the land of the Philistines. Then once they reached the location that God had decided, they stopped. The Israelites didn't have to round up the cows, and there wasn't a rodeo to try to stop them. They did that all on their own. They came up to a large stone that was in the field, and it was on that stone that the Israelites placed the ark and the box of gold that the Philistines had sent along with it. They then offered up a sacrifice to Yahweh as a burnt offering. They split the wood from the cart from the fire and offered up the cows, knowing that these objects could never be used for anything else after they'd been carrying such a sacred object. This town of Beth Shemesh was considered a priestly town, meaning that it was a town for the Levites. Again, all according to God's perfect plan, he had the ark come to a place where the people could actually move the ark. The Levites were the only ones who were able to move the ark. Turn with me, if you will, to Numbers chapter 4. So Numbers chapter 4, verses 4 to 15 says this. this. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. And when the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in. They shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And they shall put a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. Over the table of the bread of the presence they shall also spread a cloth of blue. Put it put on it the dishes and the pans and the offering bowls and the jars for the drink offering and the continual bread shall be on it and they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material and cover the same with a covering of porpoise skin they shall insert its poles then they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand for the light along with its lamps and its tongs its trays and all its oil vessels by which they minister in connection to it. And they shall put it and all its utensils in a covering of porpoise skin and shall put it on the carrying bars. And over the golden altar, they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of porpoise skin and shall insert its poles. And they shall take all of the utensils of ministry with which they minister in the sanctuary and put them in a blue cloth and cover them with a covering of porpoise skin and put them in the carrying bars. Then they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. They shall also put on it all its utensils by which the minister in connection with it, by which they minister in connection with it, the fire pans, the flesh hooks, and shovels and bowls, all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread a cover of porpoise skin over it and insert its poles. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting, which the sons of Kohath are to carry. God gave very specific instructions on how the ark was to be handled. So we see here that the Kohathites were the only ones who were able to transport the ark. But even they were given the duty that they still could not even touch the holy objects lest they die. We see that in verse 15. Now, all of the Kohathites are Levites, but not all the Levites are Kohathites. So how do we know that the people in Beth Shemesh are Kohathites? We'll turn quickly to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, 
First Chronicles chapter 6, verses 54 to 59. Now these are their settlements according to their camps within their borders, to the sons of Aaron of the families of the Kohathites, for the lot was theirs first. To them they gave Hebron in the land of Judah with its pasture lands all around it, but the fields of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb the son of Jephunneh. To the sons of Aaron they gave the following cities of refuge, Hebron, Libna, also with its pasture lands, Jatir, Eshtemoah with its pasture lands, Hillen with its pasture lands, Debir with its pasture lands, Ashen with its pasture lands, and Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands. So the town of Beth Shemesh was composed of Kohathites from the tribe of Levi. They are the only ones who were authorized to transport the ark, so that is exactly where God brought the ark. The Kohathites moved from the ark, moved the ark from the cart and set it up on a stone that is in the middle of the field for the rest of the day they sacrificed to it. Sacrifice to the Lord for bringing his holy presence back to them. Let's continue on in 1 Samuel 6, verse, 7, verse 16. So the five lords of the Philistines saw it and returned to Ekron that day. This was the evidence that the five lords of the Philistines needed that day. When the ark arrived in Beth Shemesh and the sacrifices were made, was proof that Yahweh had indeed inflicted the Philistines. Even after seeing the cow start off toward the town of Beth Shemesh, that wasn't enough to prove it to them in their minds. They needed to know without a shadow of a doubt that they were doing what they needed to do. Even though everything had happened the way that it did in the land of the Philistines, with their God being broken and the tumors that broke out in every city that the ark was, they still thought it could have all been due to luck. We see that in verse 9. Of the, it says this, See, if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that smote us. It happened to us by chance. God, as we know, was in complete control of everything that has gone on and will carry out his plans. There is no such thing as chance or luck. Verse 17 to 18 says this, Now these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to Yahweh, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of Yahweh is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite. Here we see a bit more information on what the Philistines had sent with the ark. We know that they had sent a guilt offering with the ark when they sent it back, and here we see that they had sent five golden tumors and then also some golden mice with it. The five tumors were in relation to each of the major cities of the Philistines. And the golden mice, it says, were in relation to all the cities belonging to the five lords. It mentions both the fortified and the smaller towns. We don't have the information on how many there would have been, but probably many of these golden mice would have accompanied the ark. And the large stone at which the ark stopped would have been still standing at the time of the writing as we see it, as it says that to this day, it is a witness to what happened that day. Then we get into verse 19 and 20. Then he struck down, with the, then he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of Yahweh. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men, and the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth, Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? The, ben, the men of Beth Shemesh had looked into the ark. This was very basic information. No one is to look into the ark. No one is supposed to touch the ark, much less look inside it. 
Turn back with me, if you will, to Numbers 4 again. And we'll go to the last part of Numbers 4. Numbers 4, verses 17 to 20, or the middle part, I guess. 17 to 20 of Numbers 4 says this. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites, but do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons shall go in and set each of them to his service and to his load. But they shall not go in to see the holy objects, even for a moment, or they will die. Earlier, we read of the duties of the Kohathites, and we see how particular God was in explaining to them how they were able to move the ark. There were rules in place to keep the ark safe. There were rules in place to keep the Israelites safe. At the end of that, we see this clear warning. If they go in to see the holy objects, even for a moment, they will die. This particular warning was given to the Kothites, to the family that God had commissioned to do this noble and extremely important task in moving the ark. These were the ones that God entrusted to that. But yet, even if they were to disobey for a moment, it would end in death for them. So we know that it was the same for all of the people. This would have been very well known amongst the Israelites. They knew of the holiness of God, and they knew of the wrath of God as they had experienced it in the past. There were no exceptions, no excuses to be made in regards to disobeying a command, direct command from God. But these people, these people disregard the commands of the Lord and look inside it. I'm sure that some of them had good intentions of doing this. The ark had just come back from the land of the Philistines. They probably wanted to check and make sure the tablets were still there, that the Philistines didn't take anything. They wanted to make sure that it was still acceptable. But regardless of any good intentions, a broken command still and will always be a broken command. The Lord had been patient with the people of Israel, even though they continued to disobey the time that they brought the ark into battle. God was still gracious to, to the people by bringing his ark back to them. He disciplined them the first time they disobeyed in regards to the ark to the tune of 30,000 men dying in battle. And we will see here that they will be disciplined yet once again. This time, it says that there were 50,070 men that were killed because they had looked inside the ark. This is a huge number of people who lost their lives. Now, some commentators will suggest that there was a scribal error uh, when this was being translated. The argument goes that with this scribal error, the number of people who would have died would go from 50,070 to just 70 people. In our heads, that makes a lot of sense. It makes sense that there might have been just 70 people who looked inside. It makes sense that God would want to make an example out of those people. But for God to kill 50,000 people just because they looked into the ark seems unlikely and unfair. But we need to come at this from the lens of Scripture. We can't bring our own ideas and presuppositions to force an idea on Scripture. We hold to the inerrancy of the original text that when God breathed the word to those who would pen it, he did it in a way that was completely perfect and without error. We also hold to the authority of the Bible as we hold in our hands today is the word of God. These Bibles that we have are God's word to us and have all authority as did the original text. And yet as it is passed through time and translations were created, there could be a period to change places or a comma added. 
Most commentators say that the Hebrew phrasing of this passage is, and he struck some of the people, 70 men, 50,000 men. And when it comes to the Hebrew, they typically follow the same pattern that we would when saying a number, starting with the larger, ending with the smaller. So 50,000 and 70 versus 70, 50,000. But yes, the Hebrew, the Hebrew language typically follows that, but it doesn't always follow that pattern. So it's hard to know definitively what the number is. In this case, it is more than reasonable to think that it was a case of 70 men and 50,000 men, meaning 50,000 and 70 men. What we can do, we can read it and see it and interpret it with the context. Right after the number is mentioned, it says, all the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great slaughter. Remember what happened in the battle scenes at the beginning of chapter 4? Between those two battles, there was 34,000 people who had been slain. Again, this is a huge number of people who had lost their life. So it's not at all unreasonable to think that when seeing the words a great slaughter, that there would be an even more significant amount of losses. We also see a comparable scene at the end of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24 verse 15 says, So Yahweh sent a pestilence against Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. Then the angel sent forth his hand toward Jerusalem to to destroy it, and Yahweh relented of the calamity and said, The angel who destroyed the people, It is enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Once again, we see this great number of people who had been slain by the Lord. So it's extremely natural to think of of a great slaughter being a very significant number of people who were killed. What we know for certain is that a great slaughter had just happened. It had happened because of the blatant disobedience to the commands of God in regards to his ark. It's at this point that the Israelites ask the question, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? The Philistines had answered this question by saying, not I. They couldn't stand before him, so they shipped the ark off. They didn't want the presence of God anywhere near them. Unfortunately for the Israelites, we see much the same response. They just had a firsthand encounter with the thrice holy creator and sovereign Lord, and they, instead of repentance, looked to just get rid of the ark. To whom shall he go up from us? Where can we send it so that no one else has to die? We look at this narrative and we see so much folly in the lives of the Philistines. They had taken this ark and paraded it around, and when God started to inflict them, instead of repenting, they just keep trying to move it around to evade the wrath of God. And we see the Israelites doing just the same. There are two aspects to this question that they are asking. The first aspect is, what does it mean when it says this holy God. The second aspect is, who are they? And when it comes to us asking this question about who can stand before a holy God, we need to ask the question, who are we? For us to try to understand better the holiness of God, we need to get a better understanding of how sinful we are. We need to understand the position we are all in before we come to a saving faith. We all start off as lost sinners desperately in need of a savior. We don't come as someone who is pretty good and not really in need of saving from anything. You see, when we come with that perspective in our hearts, we really think there's no need for the gospel. In our minds, we have no need for a savior, if that's the way that we view ourselves. Those Israelites who looked into the ark, I'm sure some of them were very well-meaning, checking things out, making sure everything was good. 
I'm sure they would have, would have the reasoning that I'm sure God will understand what I'm doing. Again, this is the same idea as Azza. 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 8. Let's just read that. 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 8. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they drove the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadad, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God. So they brought with the ark of God from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill, and Ohio was walking ahead of the ark. Now David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before Yahweh with all kinds of instruments made of fur, and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Then they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, and Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of Yahweh burned against Azza, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. I've read this before, but it's worth visiting quickly once again. Azza most likely saw that the ark was about to fall onto the ground, and not wanting anything to happen, reached out to keep it from landing on the ground. In doing so, he disobeyed a direct command from God to never touch the ark. At that moment, God struck Uzzah down. God, in his holiness, demands obedience. Uzzah disobeyed, so Uzzah had to die. Both Uzzah and the people of Beth Shemesh underestimated the holiness of God. They also overestimated their worthiness before him. And I think we often do the same thing in our world today. Sin is downplayed in our society, as a, and at large, it is encouraged no one wants to admit that there is absolute truth because with absolute truth comes sin. If something is absolutely true, then anything else is a lie. So let's look a bit more into the idea of the holiness of God. It is very easy for us to all agree God is holy, that he is completely separate from sin. The concept is simple and has been told to us for a long time. But what does it mean? Holiness is the only attribute of God that is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. This isn't just repeating to make people remember this attribute. This is an actual literary device to show supremacy. God is holy, 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 and there is none beside thee. There is no way to overstate the holiness of God. We're going to go to a, well, it's only, okay, Isaiah 6. Let's go to Isaiah 6. Turn with me, if you will. Isaiah 6. Uh, we went to the King and His Kingdom conference a few weeks ago, and Pastor James Coat had a tremendous sermon on this uh, passage on the holiness of God. I would encourage you guys to all listen to that, as it was a great encouragement. Um, but we're going to touch on it just briefly here, because this is so pertinent to the holiness of of God and applicable to us. Let's read Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 7. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out, while the house of God was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What an amazing passage we see here. Isaiah is being commissioned by God to be his prophet to the people of Israel. He is given a brief glimpse into the holiness of God. Right off the bat, we see that the Lord is sitting on his throne. Not only is he just seated on his throne, but it says that his robe fills the temple. This is showing the power and the majesty that is God. He is on his throne. There is no one else that is in control of this world. It is God and God alone who has the power and the right to sit on the throne. It says the seraphim are there with him. These are angelic beings, and this is the only place in Scripture that they are mentioned by name. We see from the text that they have six wings. This in itself would have been uh, an extraordinary thing to see. An angel with six wings. All through Scripture, we see that when the people are confronted with angels, they want to fall on their face because of the brilliance and wonder. But this isn't what draws the main attention to Isaiah. These amazing-looking angels with six wings stand above the Lord. And even though these are majestic angels, they're in a complete posture of inferiority. They are using two wings to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two they use for flying. They cover their face so as not to be seen by this holy God, and they cover their feet as respect and honor to him. The purpose of these beings is to praise and worship God. And it says that they were saying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of this proclamation, the foundations of the threshold shook, and the house of God filled with smoke. And this is at the sound of the seraphim proclaiming the holiness of God. Can you understand what is happening here? The whole foundation shook at the proclamation of who God is. This is the God of Israel who has so many attributes, but he is holy, holy, holy. The temple filled with smoke uh, is much the same that we see in Exodus chapter 19. We've looked at that, so we don't have to go there. But this is when God is giving the Ten Commandments and the tablet of the law. The glory of God is over the Mount Sinai and smoke covered the mountain and the whole mountain trembled. The presence of God always creates this reaction. The earth is shaking and being filled with smoke. This is the majesty of God. The supremacy and sovereignty of God. This is the holiness of God. This is what Isaiah is experiencing firsthand and it is at that time that Isaiah not only gets a glimpse into the holiness of God, but instantly makes him aware of who he is. Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. We can't see God's holiness if we don't see our sin. If we study and hear about God's holiness, 
and we don't have that drop of our heart moment when we realize, woe is me, for I am ruined, then we aren't understanding the holiness of God. We might have an intellectual knowledge of the holiness of God, but we don't have a true biblical, heartfelt understanding of what that means. Isaiah got it. He understood the holiness of God. He'd always been aware of it and knew it, but at that moment, he was all in. For I am ruined. He saw himself as he truly was, a man of unclean lips. He knew that he was not worthy to be seeing this vision, and he knew that about the people that were around him, the nation of Israel was also not worthy. It was at that point Isaiah understood what justice would look like for him. If God were to deal justly with him, he knew that would be eternal punishment in hell. That would be just. Sinning against an eternal holy God means there would need to be an eternal payment for punishment. As I have said before, the wrath of God is on all those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus. I'm going to just read a quote from Jonathan Edwards from his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It goes like this. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worth of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him. End quote. How often we minimize our sin and our offense that we have done to God. The greater we see the holiness of God, the greater we will see our offense of sin. Then the greater that we see the offense of sin, the greater the grace that God extends to us. And the greater that we see the sacrifice that was made for us. These ideas all work together. And the better understanding we have on all of these things, the better we will be able to praise and worship God, who in his infinite wisdom and love plucked us out of the road that we were headed on and called us his sons and daughters. Isaiah understood his lowly standing before God Almighty. He understood who God is and that he has the power to take away the iniquity, the sin, the guilt that Isaiah is now fully aware of. In verse 8 of Isaiah 6 says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go up for us? Then I said, Here, I, here am I, send me. Isaiah, after seeing the holiness of God in a way that very few have ever experienced, he saw his wretchedness in view of that holiness. He experienced the cleansing of the iniquity that was in his life, and his very next breath was, send me. Take me wherever you want, Lord. I will do whatever you want me to do. This took on a very real meaning for the prophet Isaiah. This wasn't just lip service. This was his heart. Isaiah prophesied for the Lord for around 40 years during the reign of five different kings and died at the hand of King Manasseh. He didn't just die peacefully in his old age, but as we see in Hebrews chapter 11, he was one of the prophets who was sawn in two. He viewed the holiness of God correctly and his own sinfulness, and because of that, he was willing to do whatever God called him to, even death. This was Isaiah's view of the holiness of God. The only other place in the Bible that we see this idea of a thrice holy God is in the book of Revelation. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4.
chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Here we see these four living creatures, day and night, without ceasing, praising God with this anthem, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Giving glory and honor is their purpose and joy. This is what they've been made to do, and nothing brings them more joy than to do just that. This God they're praising is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is no changing. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. This is the God who brought a worldwide flood on the earth. This is the God who made a covenant promise with Abraham. This is the God who brought calamity on the Israelites for bringing the ark into battle. And this is the God who brought the ark back to the people. This is the God who brought prophets to all his people with the message of repent and turn from your sins. This is the God who sent his one and only son to live the perfect life and die on the cross for his people. This is the God who raised his son from the dead on the third day and exalted him to the highest point. This is the holy, holy, holy God. This is the God who deserves all glory and honor and praise. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. This is the God that we see in 1 Samuel, where the people disregard a direct command to not touch and not to look into the Ark of the Covenant where his glory presided. This is the God who struck down the people with a great slaughter. And they ask the question, who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? They don't have the right answer. Just like the Philistines, they are without an answer as to how to resolve this massive divide between them and God. So again, just like the Philistines, they send the Ark away. Let's go back to 1 Samuel and we'll continue reading. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses starting in 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the Ark of Yahweh. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and brought the Ark of Yahweh up and brought it into the house of Abinadad on the hill and set apart Eliezer, his son, as holy in order to keep the Ark of Yahweh. Now it happened from the day when the Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, that the time was long, it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. The people of Beth Shemesh had had enough of the ark being near them. Because of the great slaughter that had happened, it brought them to their knees, but not in the right way. They sent messengers to kiriath Jerem, telling them that they need to come and get the ark because they don't want it any longer. This town of kiriath Jerem would have been about 10 miles away. This was neither a priestly nor a Levitical town, uh, as it was the case of Beth Shemesh, but this was the closest city um, to Beth Shemesh, and that is where they decided that they needed to send the ark. 
So off the ark goes to the town of Kiriath-Jerim. This area was known for their worship of false idols, in particular the false idol of Baal. The ark is taken to the house of Abinadad, and they consecrate his son to look after the ark. It seems as though the people of Kiriath-Jerim are trying to accommodate the ark as best that they could, even though they would have heard of the things that had happened in Beth Shemesh. Eliezer, the son of Abinadad, had the job of taking care of the ark as it resided there. We aren't told what those duties would be, but I'm sure one of them would be to make sure that no one touches or looks inside this thing. But uh, that is all that we see that they did. They didn't try to get it back to where it belonged in the tabernacle. They just wanted to tuck it away somewhere. There will be a time gap of around 20 years between the ark, when the ark came to Kiriath-Jerim, to what we see in verse 3 of chapter 7. The ark will be at this place for around 40 years as it doesn't leave there until David tries to bring it back in 1 Samuel, or in 2 Samuel. The time gap is there because for the next 20 years, Israel is content to just let the ark sit in the house of Abinadad. It says, all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. The people wanted the ark, but it was almost like they were putting their hands up in the air without the faintest idea as to how to have it in their presence. In the meantime, they would have not only not been serving Yahweh, but they would have instead been worshipping false idols. As the Israelites were prone to do, it wouldn't take long for them to switch their allegiance to a false god. Since the ark wasn't in the tabernacle any longer, they wouldn't have been able to keep the most sacred day, which was the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the only day of the year that they were allowed to do that, before even entering the tent, the high priest would have to bathe and cleanse themselves and put on special clothing. Then there would be a bowl to be sacrificed for the sins of the priest and his family. He would then take the blood and sprinkle it on the ark. There would also have been two goats, one to be sacrificed and the blood sprinkled on the ark, and the other one was a scapegoat. It would then be released back into the wild with the sins of Israel. As Pastor Howard talked about last week, More specifically, the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the lid of the ark, which was called the mercy seat. This would represent the covering of the sins of the people for the year. This was the day of atonement. And as long as the ark was not in the Holy of Holies, they would no longer be able to celebrate. They would no longer be able to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat with the sins on them. This was the state that Israel was in for 20 years. They understood that God was holy and that he was completely separate from them, but they didn't know how they could come to him, and they didn't know how anyone could stand before him. So, who can stand before a holy God? I was talking to my kids this week about what I was going to be preaching on, and I I was going to be preaching on the holiness of God. And I asked them this question very similar to the one I asked you at the beginning. I asked them, how does someone stand before a holy God? And Jerusalem smile on her face, answered with, well, we need to be perfect. This was an honest answer. This was an impossible answer. But this was the right answer. We can't be perfect. The sin nature that we're born with gives us the proclivity to do the things that we are not supposed to do. The Israelites couldn't be perfect either. But the answer to the question was sitting in the house of Abinadad, the ark, and specifically the mercy seat, It is only through the cleansing of sin by shed blood that someone can stand before a holy God. In the Old Testament, that was the sacrificial system and the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go in after having the cleansing ceremony and would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on the Hillisterion. Because they couldn't be perfect, they needed the blood to wash away their sin. 
It was only then that they would be able to stand before a holy God. And it's the exact same for us today. I don't know what answer you came up with when I first asked the question. It may have been good works or church attendance or listening to lots of sermons or helping people or just generally being a good person in our eyes. But if the answer wasn't the blood of Christ, then it was the wrong answer. The Day of Atonement and the Mercy Seat on the Ark was not the fulfillment of the promise that it represented. It was pointing to something much, much greater, something much, much better. It was pointing to Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 to 28. Therefore he, is also a, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The priests in the Old Testament had to do a ritual to be cleansed in order to make a sacrifice. But our high priest, Jesus, was perfect. And therefore, he had no need to be cleansed. He lived that life that none of us could live. He was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The implications of this are huge. Jesus is able to make this sacrifice a once for all. There is no need to continue sacrificing because Jesus fulfilled all. When he offered himself up on the cross, that was it. In the law, the high priests were weak. They were sinful. They made many, many mistakes. But Jesus was perfect. And his power has been made perfect forever. Flip over a few more pages to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read the first 18 verses of this. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having, been one, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. 
For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Again, we see that the law was just a shadow of the thing that was to come. The sacrificial system was pointing to something greater. What they had to do all the time, the greater thing that it was pointing to would only need to happen once. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose again on the third day, that act would not only pay for the sins of those God calls in the future, but all of God's people, past, present, and future. Jesus took away the first which was the law and the sacrificial system. And he has given us the second, which was always God's perfect will. The author of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that the blood from goats and rams will never take away sin. It was just a covering until the blood of Christ would be shed, the Messiah, our Savior. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those that God has called the one offering of Jesus has perfected for all time. This is the most amazing thing that we could ever think of. We just read in verse 1 that the sacrifices that the priest made could never make perfect those who draw near. But Christ in his one offering has made perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. Those that are being sanctified are those who have had the blood of Christ pay for their sins. Even the two goats during the Day of Atonement pointed to Christ. As I said, the one goat is killed and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, and the other is sent out into the, into the wilderness with the sins of the community. Jesus fulfills these shadows in a perfect way. Verse 17 says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Think about that one for just one second. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. The sins that we've committed, the things that we have done, after we are sanctified through the blood of Christ, they will remember no more. Verse 18 says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There no longer needs to be an offering for sin because it has been paid for once for all by the only sacrifice and high priest that could. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, steps down from glory and humbles himself, as you see in Philippians, and he humbles himself to the lowest point, even to the point of death on the cross, And it was that death on the cross and that resurrection from the dead that renders any future sacrifice for sin obsolete. Romans 5, verses 8 to 11 says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Those who are called were the sinners, that, and Christ died for the worst of the worst. But through his death and the blood that he shed, we have been given his righteousness. His righteousness has been imputed to our account. We are now legally declared righteous in the eyes of God. And since we are justified, we are no longer under the condemnation and wrath of God. This same wrath that we see afflict the Israelites time and time again, 
the same wrath that struck them with a great slaughter for disobeying his commands in regard to the ark. This same wrath led the Israelites to ask the question, who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? The short answer to that question, much like what the Philistines and the Israelites came up with, is that no one can stand before a holy God. We are sinners who are the furthest thing from holy, so there is no way any of us can stand before a holy God. Or I should say, there is no way any of us can stand before a holy God by ourselves. Our sin will always get in the way, but as we have been reading, Jesus fulfills all the shadows and the promises that we see in the Old Testament in regards to the atonement. If we rest on his accomplishments, his perfect sinless life that he lived, his death and resurrection, and his defeat of sin, if we understand and believe these things, then we will be able to stand before God with Jesus' righteousness imputed to our account, and God will see us as righteous. Again, this is the most amazing thing in the world to see the love that God has for his children, to not only forgive sin, but to remember it no more. Not only just that, but for him to see us with the righteousness of Christ rather than our own sinfulness. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The offer is here for all who hear my voice today. You can be seen as righteous. You don't need to keep trying to be holy, trying to be good and getting no results. You don't need to keep worrying that your, <clears throat> that your sin is too great for God to forgive or that you have too many bad things You've done too many bad things to ever have a chance of redemption. The thing that needs to happen is for you to repent and believe. You need to repent of the sin that you have committed, knowing that ultimately all of our sins have been against a thrice holy God. You need to believe that Jesus, being fully God, came down to earth and humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross, and on the third day was raised from the dead, and in so doing defeated sin and gave new life to his children. Have you done that? Have you submitted yourself to this holy God? Remember, if that hasn't happened in your life, then the wrath of a thrice holy God is still upon you. And there will come a day when you will stand before him and he will ask you, on what grounds can you stand here? And if your only answer is the things that you have done, the good works, or the fact that there might be more people that are worse than you, his answer will be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you have, if you have submitted yourself to Christ, then I pray that this message has given you hope and encouragement as we have a high priest who was without sin who stands in for us and gives us his righteousness so that we can indeed stand before a holy God. What an amazing thing and something that we are promised can never be taken away. And because of that, we will be accepted into the perfect heaven that God has created, where we will live eternally in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we think of this topic of your holiness, we know that we can never understand even a sliver of what it means when it says that you are holy, holy, holy. But may you be working in our lives and may you be sanctifying us and may you be cleansing our lives, Father. Help us to live the way that we are called to live as believers. And for those who have yet to put their faith in you, Today is the day of salvation. You are gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger and you're rich in love. Father, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you for your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen.